0: A formal welcome to Torah Studies.
1: Recording in progress.
0: This is our weekly look at the Torah portion. This week's Torah portion is by Yeshev. This is live from Texas. Live from Texas. This is Torah Studies. and it's great to have you all. I'm going to turn off all the mics so that we have a nice clean background so we can all hear and learn the Torah portion together. Okay, friends, we have a powerful discussion for you tonight. We're going to talk about the very interesting confluence of stories and the message it holds for us in our lives. All right, so we're going to, today we're going to explore the dynamic of Yaakov and Esau, i.e. Jacob and Esau. We're going to talk about the spiritual uh, dimensions of Tohu and Tikkun, the world of chaos, the world of repair, which we actually, interestingly enough, by divine providence, we... um, we explored Sunday at Kabbalah and Coffee. Then we are going to talk about um, sand and pebbles and all of this to walk away with, with hopefully some powerful insights that we can apply to our own lives. Today, on this day, of Thanksgiving, November 24th, 2021. Alright, so we begin with the opening of this week's Torah portion. Torah portion is called, as I mentioned before, Vayeshev. It talks about how Jacob settles in the land of Canaan. And he wants to settle with peace and tranquility. But of course, there's a little bit of, a, of another plan that is about to unfold. The drama of Joseph. But be that as it may, the point of the opening of this week's Torah portion, as we'll see in a moment, or we'll, we'll read the text inside, is that um, the this, this story that we're about to jump into is the story of the Jewish people. This is Jacob, his children, his 12 sons, the 12 tribes. It's going to culminate with, you know, it, what's going to continue with uh, the family moving to Egypt and then the Egyptian exile and then the Egyptian, and then the Exodus and Torah and the travels. This is now the Jewish story. All right, so let's begin with the opening line of this week's Torah portion. I'm going to share my screen with you all. Stay here, please. Wait for it. Here we go. Text 1A, a long-winded story. Let's begin. Adina Malka, if you don't mind getting us started, text 1A. Hmm. Jacob settled in the
1: land of his father's sojourning in the land of
0: Canaan. There you go. So Jacob settles back home. This is after, again, 34 years. We spoke about this in, I believe, last week. In last week's Torah, uh, Torah studies class, where Jacob is away from his family, he's away from his brother because his brother wanted to kill him anyway. But finally, after so many years, after three and three and a half decades, he finally returns to Canaan and he settles there. Now, text 1b, if you don't mind, the Dinamaka, please continue in a moment. But let me first set this up. This is the opening, 1a is the opening of this week's Torah portion, and text 1b is. The end, not the last verse, but toward the end of last week's Torah portion. Last week's Torah portion, we ended off with a very elaborate discussion about the family of Esau, Esau's family. So let's read, if you don't mind, the Dinamaka, read the first two verses, and then I'll, I'll fill in the rest. Take it, take it away.
1: And these are the descendants of Esau, that is Adom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. Adah, daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Ohilabama, daughter of Anna, daughter of Zibion, the
0: Hittite. Okay, so basically, at the, toward the end of last week's Torah portion, we read about the life and times of Esau, the brother of Jacob, and it goes through his family, his wives. He had three wives, Ada, Olivama. Oh, only mentions two here. Um, he married another woman whose name was Basmas, Whatever, he married three women, and he had multiple children, and those children had children. And the Torah gets into very elaborate detail about the family tree of Esau, and that was, again, at the end of last week's Torah portion. And then this Torah portion begins with text 1a. I know we're going backwards in time, but text 1a talks about Jacob and his family. So if we want to line up the chronology of the Torah's conversation... So last week's Torah portion, Vayishlach, at the end it talks about Esau's family. This week's Torah portion, we continue with Jacob's family, Yaakov's family. And that's where the narrative continues. So to to kind of frame it, Rashi gives us a good framing. At the beginning of this week's Torah portion, Rashi frames the juxtaposition. Why does last week's Torah portion end off with Esau's family? And this Torah portion begins with Jacob's family Rashi gives us a nice way to understand this. Okay, let's ask um, Donna Bogatin. Donna, are you up to reading? Okay, awesome. This again, text number two, page 117. Take it away, please.
2: Scripture described Esau's settlements and his generations, but only briefly, because they were not distinguished or important enough to elaborate on in detail how they settled and the order of their wars or how they drove out the horites in contrast scripture elaborates on the settlements of jacob and his generations and all the events that caused these travels since they were considered important enough to god to dwell upon at length similarly you find regarding the 10 generations from adam to noah so-and-so begot so-and-so but when scripture reached noah it dealt it dwelt upon him at length this is an analogous to a pearl that falls into the sand. A person searches in the sand and sifts it with a sieve until he finds the pearl. And when he finds it, he casts the pebbles from his hand and keeps the pearl.
0: Thank you. I want to keep keep this text up because there's a lot of really interesting information in this Rashi. This is like from the opening Rashis of this week's Torah portion, and it's really important. Rashi says, at at the end of last week's Torah portion, the Torah described Esau's settlements and his generations. Briefly. Okay, that's the big deal. Torah only briefly describes Esau's family. And that was, again, the end of last week's Torah portion. doesn't go into great detail of who they were and how they were and why they were. It just says names. This one was born, that one was born, this one was a king, that one. It goes to very briefly. I mean, it takes a number of verses, but it's very relatively. Then, this week's Torah portion, now we have Jacob and his family. They were twin brothers. But Esau's family gets this much. And Jacob's family gets the rest of Torah. Are you with me with this? Jacob's family, the 12 tribes, Joseph, Egypt, Moses, Exodus, Torah, wanderings, that's the rest of the Torah, is Jacob's family. So Rashi's telling us, we basically, just in my own words, I'm going to use a little bit of a, you know, a a coarser language. Torah kind of knocks out Esau's side of the family, Esau's side of the family, Kind of quickly. And then, all right, now that that's out of the way, boom, let's focus in. Let's zoom in on Jacob and his life and times because that's the main feature of the biblical narrative. That was paragraph number one. Paragraph number two, Rashi brings a parallel. He says we find the same thing earlier in the Torah, beginning of the book of Genesis, where it briefly goes through all the people, not all the people, but the the, the highlights of the generations from Adam to Noah. This one gave birth to that one. That one gave birth to that one. It goes like very quickly through the 10 generations. But so one second, Adam, we, we learn what, what he did. Then we just zooms through all those other guys. And then when you get to Noah, once again, suddenly we get a lot of detail. Noah and the flood and the ark and his kids and the dead. You know. And then again, from Noah to Abraham, he doesn't say this, but I'm adding this in. Noah to Abraham, again, very quickly in Torah. This one had that one, and that one had that one. And And then Abraham, once again, you get all the detail. So we have this system in Torah, if you will. Okay? We just call it a pattern, right, in Torah, where the Torah focuses ever briefly on the things that it doesn't consider to be that important or that necessary for us to derive lessons from. But then when we get to a character... A main character, suddenly we take a deep dive into uh, into their life and times. So, getting back to our context, the Torah briefly treats Esau's side of the family and then more elaborately focuses in on Jacob's family. That's the pattern and that's the style. Rashi, though, adds one more little analogy, which we might note, seems a little bit unnecessary because so far everything I've told you is pretty rational and re- and reasonable, correct? Imagine you read a novel, la right? A novel. And um, we say la by the way, to distinguish between that which is holy like Torah and that which is a novel, right? By the way, I'm mentioning novels. I should mention the In-Town Jewish Academy's Jewish Book Club. Join us for that we pushed the dates have been moved around a little bit, but this time for sure it's December. I'm trying to remember the date, is it the 12th now? Is that the new date? The 12th of December. It's the Sunday, the second Sunday in December, where we have a great book. It's called Unstoppable. Join us for that. More information on the website IntownJewishAcademy.org. Back to our story. Imagine a novel. Yeah. You have certain characters that are the main characters of the book. And then there are other characters that come in and out. But it's not like the novel um, gives us the full story and every one of the characters. You would need a full novel about each of the characters. Are you with me on this? So you have the main characters, and then you have supporting characters, and then you have people that just come in and out of the novel, you know, and and, and you don't really know much about. And, and the Torah, again, Le'avdur, the Torah has... A similar pattern, where it, it flies through the characters that were not meant to, you know, there's no real lesson that we're learning from, but the ones that are, that are a little bit more important, like Yaakov and his family, that we focus in on. Okay, then Rashi adds a, adds a detail, and that's the analogy, which, again, seems a bit unnecessary, to be honest, but let's, uh, let's read it inside. This is the last paragraph of this Rashi. Take a look. Um, and I know Donna read this, but let's uh, let's kind of look at it again. He says this, it's analogous to a pearl that falls into the sand. So imagine, just again, I- imagine this as a, as a real thing. You have a pearl, you're on the beach, the pearl falls into the sand. So then what would you do? You would search in the sand, you would sift the sand, you would like scoop up a bunch of sand and sift it with a sieve until you find the pearl. When you find the pearl, you throw away the pebbles and keep the pearl. Make sense? Okay, by the way, I saw a few people nod your heads. It doesn't make sense to me, and I'll tell you why soon. Okay, but, but, but listen, you know what? If it doesn't make sense to me, it might also not make sense to you. So feel free to think about why it doesn't make sense to you. I'll share with you why it doesn't make sense to me in a moment. Um, okay, so this is a Rashi that explains why we have, is, why we have um, a discussion about Esau in last week's Torah portion. We get through it, and now we're up to to Jacob. It's kind of like those 10 generations. You fast forward until you get to the main stuff. The problem is that makes no sense. I'm going to ask two questions. One on the much discussed analogy about the sand, the pearl, the sieve, and the pebbles. But the, but the other question, the first question that I have right now is regarding the the core idea that rashi is trying to share in the first place rashi's saying that just like the torah fast forwarded through those 10 generations between adam and noah and then again between noah and abraham and just briefly said this one that one this one that one this one that one noah this one that one this one that abraham so too we did esau's family and then jacob the problem is that doesn't make sense. Does anybody want to, want to tell me why that doesn't make any sense? Who can explain to me my question? You have to read my mind now. Why doesn't that make sense? Why doesn't it make sense that the Torah is fast-forwarding through Isa's family before it gets to Jacob's family? All right. I'll share with is you it why.
2: Is out of order? Say it again. Is it out of order?
0: Yes. In other words. Yes, excellent. In other words. When it came to the other generations, it was moving through the timeline to get to the main character. But here's the crazy thing with Esau's family, as mentioned in last week's Torah portion. You're talking about future descendants. Are you with me on this? You're talking about children that were not yet born to Esau. You're talking about his future kids hundreds of years in the future, a few centuries forward, and then we come back to Jacob. So if you tell me that you have to go through Esau's family chronologically until you get to the timeline of Jacob. That's one thing. But they're twin brothers. You don't need to tell me the family of of Esau going down a bunch of generations, hundreds of years, and then go back up to Jacob. That doesn't make any sense. Does that make sense, what I just said? Just so you can understand the timeline, take a look at text 3a. Okay? And because because I like you guys, I'm going to take this reading for myself because it's got a lot of names. A lot of hard-to-pronounce names. Okay, here we go. So this is an example of the chronology that's brought in last week's Torah portion in the family of Esau. Take a look. Verse 31. And these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. And the land of Edom refers to Esau's family descendants. That's where he was from. So the Torah is telling us that they had this whole... they 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 had all this stuff going on. They had monarchies. They had you know, um, things going on before the Jews had a king in the land of Israel. In other words, while the Jews were going down to Egypt and being enslaved for 210 years and exodusing and then wandering for 40 years in the desert, while all that was going on, Esau's kids and descendants, they had, they had a thing going on in the land of Edom. So here, here are the kings. The Torah lists a bunch of them. There's Bela, son of Ba'ar, he reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinhaba. Bela died, verse 33. Bela died, and Yobab, son of Zerach of Bozrah, reigned in his stead, and Yobab died. And Chusham of the land of the Tamanites reigned in his stead. Chusham died, and Hadad, son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his stead. The name of his city was Avit. Hadad died, verse 36. And Samla of Masreka reigned in his stead, verse 37. Samla died, and, Ra- and Saul Shaul, of Rehovot. By the river reigned in his stead, Shaul, Saul, died. And Baal Hanan, son of Akbar, reigned in his stead. Baal son of Akbar, died. And Hadar reigned in his stead. The name of his city was Pau. His wife's name was Matabel, daughter of Matre, the daughter of May, Zahav. Okay, now I know what you're thinking. Why do we need to know any of this? But that's kind of my question. That's kind of my question. That's kind of what Rashi said before. Rashi said, we don't really need to know. The Torah is just going through and moving through it quickly until we get to the main feature. But that doesn't make sense. That's my question now. That doesn't make sense. Because we're not going through all these people to know how we got to Jacob. These are people that lived after Jacob passed away. These are people that lived centuries. Do you know that this last king, Baal Hanan, verse 39, Baal Hanan, yeah, this king was ultimately defeated by the first Jewish king. These were the kings of Edom before the Jewish monarchy began, before the first Jewish king. So this, yeah, this is going on much, much, much later in history than the story of Jacob and Joseph. Again, I I hope, I I really hope that, that the timelines are clear. The beginning of this week's Torah portion tells us what happens with Jacob and his son Joseph and the brothers, and they sell him as a slave to Egypt, and that ultimately leads to the Jewish descent into Egypt, and then the ex- and then slavery and the exodus, etc. This is now the Jewish story. The Torah pivots to the Jewish story. Because last week we did the asaph story. The Esau story. And why? To move through it to get to the Jewish story. But you don't need to move through it. That's the question. You don't need to move through it. When you talk about ten generations between Adam and Noah, you got to move through those generations until you get to Noah. Ten generations from Noah to Abraham, you have to move through those, those generations until you get to Abraham. You don't need to move through asaph's descendants to get to Jacob and his family. Does that make sense? That's probably the clearest way that I can state it. Okay, I've said it a few different times a few different ways. I hope it's making sense. So that's question number one. Question number two, why is the whole thing pertinent? I mean, it's a related question. Why is the whole thing pertinent? We need to really know about Asa's family. Even if we're fast-forwarding through it, it seems like this one was king, that one was king, this one was king, that one was king. We, we need to know who the kings were. Seems a little bit unnecessary. And again, it seems out of place. Um... I'll take a stab at it. Hold on one second. Hold on one one, one second. Let me just see. I realized that I left off text 3B. I'm going to get to you in one second. Let me jump in on 3B. Here we go. Rashi explains. These are the kings. I just read that before 3A. There were eight kings, Rashi says, and Jacob raised an equal number in whose days the kingdom of Esau temporarily ceased to exist, namely Saul, Ishbosheth, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Asa, Via, and Yoshaphat, these were eight Jewish kings that followed the eight kings of Esau. So, again, it, the chronology doesn't really fit. Yes, I know eight and then followed by eight, but you don't need to discuss those eight that are so far later in history before you get to Jacob. Ostensibly, the reason why, J- why Esau's family is discussed in last week's Torah portion is to set up the Jacob's family discussion, but that's not the case because that's further on in history. We're talking about the times when, the times of Jacob, and that's well before any of these eight A- kings ruled. Um, yes, Yaakov, jump in. Yaakov, after all, it is your namesake, so uh, maybe you got some insight for us.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, uh, hello, hello, good morning, but then I realized I was in the wrong class. Um, a couple days early, so uh, we, you know, we were first. We thought maybe um, Isaac was a little senile, and then he was getting fooled, and then he didn't know the good son from the bad son. But then we learned that you know Esau was supposed to uh, use his power to, uh, to to be the ruler of the of of the world, whereas uh, you know Jacob could um, could could be the, the high priest of the world. So maybe it's saying God saying, you know, this is what could have been Um, these uh, all of his sons. They were kings. They had the power to do good, but they didn't. So their line ended. And this is a guy that came over later. But his line still is alive and well.
0: Good. I like that. I like that. Good. I, you know, the th- thematically, it ties in a little bit to the direction that we're going to head. So let's uh, let's let, let's keep that in mind as we as we continue to, to to move forward with this. Good. Good. I like that idea. So what we're going to do now is, oh, I'm sorry. And there was another question that I have about the pebble and the sand and the pearl, right? Something doesn't make sense. Something doesn't make sense. Ra- First of all, Rash, why do you need the analogy? You're sifting for pearls. We get it. We get it. There's there's important conversations, and there there are convers there are parts of the narrative that are very important, and parts that are not so important. Easy. Anyone that's ever written or read or or just given a conversation, I spoke in a conversation. Anyone knows. Everyone knows that yeah, there are things that are more important and things that are less important. That's it. So like, wh- why do you need to give an example of? Uh, of a, of, of, of a pearl and sifting. Also, if you, you know, I'm going to put it up again. There's a very weird little construct here with that analogy. Okay, so look what happens. So the pearl falls into the sand. You search in the sand, sift it with a, sieve, with a sieve. Till you find the pearl. And when he finds it, he casts the pebbles away. Where did the pebbles come from? We have sand, right? We have a pearl in the sand. And the next thing you know, he's casting away pebbles. Who has Pebbles. What happened? I, I know, I know, I know. I get it, I get it, I get it. You say, no, no, no. The sand has different size pieces. So you have a sieve, so the little pieces fall through the sieve. But the bigger pieces, right, of rocks are collected. And he also finds the pearl. So he finds the pearl. So the, so there's three things. The sand falls through. The rocks and the pearl get caught Oh throws away the rocks, and now he has the pearl. Yes? Yes? You with me? Of course. But it still seems weird, right? The sand, what's the sand, and what's the pearl, and what's the pebble, and where do the pebbles come from? Right? What is it? The Flintstones. Wasn't there a character named Pebbles? Did I get this right? I I know I got this right. Anyway, moving on. So the point is like this. What is the analogy? What's the point of the analogy? And what are the details? What, What do they actually mean? To understand all of this, we're going to get Kabbalistic. And as I said in my intro, what's interesting is that it aligns perfectly with our Kabbalah class from Sunday morning. Now, you might be thinking, I wasn't at the Kabbalah class. Maybe you weren't at the Kabbalah class Sunday morning. So what did we say? Don't worry. I got you covered. What we're going to talk about now is the uh, the cosmology, the spiritual cosmology of existence. How does creation come about? What's the process? But more importantly, what does what is the structure of the universe itself? Kabbalah tells us something pretty mind-blowing. And that is... that before our reality existed, there was another reality. There was a world, a universe, a galaxy far, far away, or maybe not so far away, but that, that preceded ours. And what was that reality called? It's called Tohu. Tohu. It gets its name from, the, from the, one of the opening verses of the Torah. It says that the world was Tohu Vavohu. Tohu means empty or void or chaotic. Let's call it chaotic, chaos. The world of Tohu is a world of chaos. And then our world is called Olam HaTikun, the world of repair. So we have these two realities. We'll just abbreviate them. Instead of saying the world of and the world of, we'll just call them Tohu and Tikun, chaos and repair. What we're going to do tonight, we're going to look at the original sources. The original sources from the great Arizal, from the great Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, the great great, great Kabbalist who lived in the 1500s, who describes the process by which the world of chaos came to be and came to be not, and the way the world of repair, tikkun, came to be. So first, a little bit of a mystical Kabbalistic primer, and that is that God emanates ten energies with which to create the world. Think about think about um, uh, building blocks that you use to create something. So, very crude example: Lego. Yeah. Somebody says, uh, build a build a menorah out of Lego, or build a menorah. Yeah, out, out of Lego. So, the first thing you need are Lego pieces. So, before you have a world, you need the pieces, the building blocks to create the world. So, there are ten, according to Kabbalah, there are ten energies that God employs, that God uses, that God creates. In order to create the world. Again, before you create the world, you need the tools to create the world. Yes? You know Elon Musk? um, Elon Musk, yeah? You know what he did with Tesla is he created robots to create a car. He didn't have people creating, although people are involved in the process also. But the whole chah, the whole chachma, the whole uh, brilliance of Tesla, right, is that they have robots, and I know you also have robots in other forms of manufacturing, but this is really like as one of the more automated processes that exists right now. He has robots creating the cars, and the truth is, he has robots creating robots who's creating the cars. I think that's the ultimate vision, where you have this completely like self-create. But you need the you need tools to create other tools. That's the way it works. So you need the the, the spiritual energies, or God creates spiritual energies to then create the world from these energies. These are known as as the ten spherot, the ten energies, ten divine emanations by which God creates the world. It's no different than a painter, an artist, right, who has one of those palettes, right, as I'm holding now in my imaginary palette with my fingers, right, that has Bob Ross, has all of those little colors, right, all the colors, yeah, got a palette, happy trees, happy trees. I'm actually wearing my Bob Ross socks right now. Indeed, I have Bob Ross socks. I'm not going to show you. That would be weird. But yes, I actually legitimately have Bob Ross socks on. And the point is like this. Yeah, you can't create your happy trees without colors, without paint. You need paint to paint. It's no different than language communication. You can't speak. I can't speak without tools, without articulations of speech. If we human beings did not have, did not create, if we didn't have the tools of, of speech and communication, it would be, uh, I would be miming the class right now, right? That's all I know. All I know is the mime stuck in a bit of a glass, uh, glass cube situation. So here's the point. You need the tools to create what you need to create. God created the tools, created the universe. But in iteration number one, V1, version one of existence, we had chaos. Chaos ruled the day. Tohu, baby, this is chaos. What was chaotic about it? It says like this. Kabbalah explains, each energy of these 10 energies, 10 emanations, 10 spherot, was amped up 100%. Each one of them was supercharged. It was like bright yellow and bright pink, and bright orange. And at some point, they became too loud for the canvas to contain. Are you with me on this? I'm using now a paint analogy for the breaking of the vessels. The energies, the, 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 the lights of these 10 energies were so powerful that that universe exploded. Couldn't contain, these energies couldn't be contained. It's like you put in a bunch of people with big personalities into one room And at some point, there's going to be, you know, some some actions going to go down. There's going to be some sort of some sort of scuffle going on because you just have you just too many kings in one room. Are you with me? Too many forces in one space. It's just you can't can't contain it. Anytime you have too much stuff, whatever that is, in too little a space, something goes wrong. Like if. Like I said, Sunday morning, you t- you, if, if you expose, the God forbid, the human eye to the full brightness of the sun, it's too much light for the container of the eye. It's going to harm the eye, God forbid. If you put too, mu- too much force of water into a, a flimsy cup, the cup's going to shatter. Too much wisdom, too much brilliant ideas into the smaller mind of a child. When I say smaller, I mean like the un the as-of-yet-developed, fully mind of a child, it's going to confuse the child. The child not only will not contain the information, the child's going to get confused and, 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 and not know whether they're, com- whether they're coming or going. So here's my point, just to kind of wrap this up succinctly. Kabbalah teaches that there was a realm, a world, a universe, a reality before ours, call it version one, where the lights of these pallid energies The lights were too big for the vessels the containers to contain it was too big so what happened to that world it exploded q world version number two that's us we're number two we're v2 version 2 2.0 and in world 2.0 the opposite is true the lights are reduced and the vessels the containers are broad in other words there's not a lot of not a lot of energy, not a lot of divine energy. It's very low level. We feel like on a very practical level, a very human level, we identify first and foremost with our own ego, with our own identity, and only secondarily are aware of something higher than ourselves, God. We start off with a self-consciousness and a self-awareness, and hopefully ideally we move on to a place where we also recognize that there's a creator, there's a purpose, Etc. But it begins with us. The vessels are large. That's us, and the lights are small. That's the divine light. So we live in the opposite extreme. In the first iteration of the world, there was so much light, the space exploded. In our realm, you can't even sometimes you can't even find the light. Where is God? Has anyone seen him lately? Has God done any miracles lately? I don't know. Has God spoken to any, any any of us lately? You know what they say. If you speak to God. Right And pray, you're, you're religious. If God speaks to you, you're Meshuggah. Anyway, but that's the, that's the way it works, right? God does, typically we don't have, it's a joke. I mean, but like, right? So so the point is like this. We live in a reality where the lights are relatively small. Let's take a look at how this is described in the original Kabbalistic text. This is going to be a very fun, I think it's going to be a very interesting and fun experience. We're going to skip a few texts. Let's go to text. Number five. I'm going to read this and throw in some commentary. This comes from, so you know, Eitz Chaim, Tree of Life. This comes from the te- from penned by Rabbi Chaim Vital, but he only wrote what his teacher taught him, and that was, his, te- his teacher was, the Arizal, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, the great famed Kabbalist from Safet Svat in Israel, who is the father, as it makes sense of, Lurianic Kabbalah. Let's continue. Let- let's jump into this text. God wished to create the world to benefit his creations and so that they should recognize his greatness and merit to become an instrument of heaven and cleave to him. So again, the the section opens up by saying, why did God create the world? God created the world to do good things to others. God wanted an an other to do good. You can't do good. I mean, you could do good to yourself, but at some point it gets boring. So God created a world to have others to give to. That's number one. Number two, the second purpose of creation is that these others should recognize God. Let's continue. In doing so, God emanated a single point that included ten indiscernible points all contained in one container. So you have a single single point with ten points broken down into ten. These are the ten energies. Let's continue. This is called the world of chaos and emptiness, tohu vavohu. The world of points, Nikudin, points, meaning the energies are self-contained, amped up 100%. They're all points of light. When when we say points, it doesn't mean that they're small. It means that they're self-contained and there's no balance with the complementary point. They're all kind of fighting each other, again, like big personalities in the same room. Instead of uh, playing together in harmony and in a symphony, they now end up fighting each other. Let's continue. These containers broke on account of the great light they contained but could not bear. God noted this and he desired to repair all of the worlds so, so that they could tolerate this light. He did so by diffusing. That means by limiting, refracting the light and distancing the lights from his supernal self so that the lights would become more concealed. Thus, the world would be sustainable and able to tolerate the light. So God, in iteration number one, the light is too big. The vessels are too small and it's, un- it's not sustainable. In version number two, the lights are less, the containers are big, and all is well. Yes, Mom?
2: My, my question is this. Well, two questions. One is, did God make a mistake? Okay, good. And the second is, where are all these big lights or energies where
0: did they go okay good so excellent two two excellent questions so kabbalah speaks about this so no it's not it's it's not so the 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 iteration number one is not a mistake it's not like god you know was in the laboratory mixing the things and oh whoops all right next time we'll pour a little bit less in that's not that's not what's going on this is a deliberate act in order to create the, the the beginning of existence, which we're version two, but that means we're built on version one. The origins of, of life begin with a lot of light, a lot of light, a lot of energy, a lot of divine energy. And ultimately, that's a good thing. Now, it was too much to contain, so you had to cut it. That's version two. But it's not a mistake. We're, we're starting off with a bang. We're starting off with like... A, a lot of light, and then and then the ultimately working back there. And what happens to the light? So as we'll see soon in the next text, that when the vessel shattered, it 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 the vessels that had the residue of that light fell into all of the all of the physical things in this reality. And our job is to collect the sparks and the fragments of light and the shards of the vessels that broke and to elevate them back up. So this is, so let's, let's actually read this inside because it's really beautiful and fascinating stuff. This is Kabbalistic poetry here, really. Um, let's take a look at this. And here, actually, hold on. Yeah, this actually now connects it also to Jacob and Esau, the two characters that we've been talking about. Remember we talked about, like, why is the story of Esau first, and why are we talking about Esau's kids and Jacob and his... Like what's, what's going on with that whole timeline? So here we have now a Kabbalistic, the cross-referencing between the Tohu and Tikkun realities and Jacob and Esau. So here we go. Let's, let's jump in. I'm going to read this again so I can throw in some commentary. It is known... This is from the Altarever of Schneer's of Liadi, whose holidays we've been uh, celebrating this week, the 19th and 20th days of Kislev. It is known that Jacob's source... The source of Yaakov is from the world of Tikkun, the world of repair. That's version 2. And Esau's source is from the world of Tohu, the world of chaos. The lights of Tohu, chaos, are very great and could not be integrated into any vessels. They departed from the vessels and remained in a transcendent state while the vessel shattered and fell below. I'm going I'm to um, modify that in a moment. Therefore, the terrestrial Esau was wicked. However, an Esau's source in the abstractness of Tohu, the lights of Torah are higher than the lights of Tikkun. So what the Altarev is saying is like this, that Esau, and we've talked about this many, many times, Esau had tremendous potential. He's, he's symbolic of that first iteration of the world that had such big light, but it was just it, it just was too volatile. It, it was unsustainable. It was not, it was not grounded. It just, it just couldn't, couldn't last. Esau has tremendous potential, but because he has such powerful energy, it just it's almost too much. and he ends up leading a life of crime and mayhem and leading a literal, literally a chaotic life, his, sh- his vessels, so to speak, shatter and he's living a physically chaotic life, murder and, and, and abuse and all the stuff that he's doing. Um, and his potential remains spiritual potential. The light is there, but he's not living that light. It's like the shattering of the vessels. The light is there, but the vessel shattered. Right, a shattered vessel is is broken. It's broken. It's not you know. It's, it's a, it, you. so that's the story of Esau. Jacob, on the other hand, comes from the world of Tikkun, the world of repair. So the light may not be as big. It's not as 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 just you know. The power, the force, the sheer raw force of Jacob is not as big, but it's sustainable. He's righteous. He's doing the right thing. He's studying Torah. He's praying. He's meditating. He's doing mitzvah, whatever that looked like before the Torah was given. He's doing the right thing but it's a bit in a box. Now, the ideal is the big light in the big container. To be able to contain the big light and to go big, that's ultimately what uh, what the destination is, which we'll talk about in a moment. But until then, we have two options almost. We have, it's kind of like an either or. Either Either the lights are big and then the vessels shatter, or the lights are small and the vessels don't shatter. Each one has an advantage and a disadvantage. A lot of light is great, but it's too much. A little light is not great, but it's sustainable, so it's like one or the other. So the mystics tell us that this is the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau or, or Esau and Jacob. is the firstborn, he's V1, version one, of Isaac's children. As version one, he's got the big light, he's got the small vessel, and uh, he go, it goes haywire a little bit. And then you have Jacob, V2, version number two, more contained, more settled, more deliberate, he's righteous. He fits more into the box, and that's it. What's interesting to note is that the mystics further tell us that this constitutes the entirety of the purpose of creation. What do I mean? Of of version 2. We live, you and I live in a world of tikkun, the world of repair. And our job is tikkun olam, to fix the world. You know what that means? It's not, the, the origination of that phrase tikkun olam does not begin in the 1990s when it comes to saving the planet and the environment, tikkun olam. That's not where it begins. It begins in the 1500s with the mystics, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, who talks about how the job of tikkun version 2 is to fix version 1. Let me slow this down a little bit. The purpose of our reality is to fix the broken vessels that broke from the previous reality. Because what happened to those vessels? And what happened to that light? Although we just read that the light remains above, It's, there's more to it. The light, the residue, I mentioned this before, the residue of the light remains with the vessel, the broken pieces. And where are those broken pieces? They're embedded within everything. Think about glass. You know, when you drop a glass and it shatters. Yeah, imagine you have like a a hardwood floor or let alone carpet, right? The glass shatters, maybe it doesn't shatter on carpet, whatever, let's say a hardwood floor, it shatters. Yeah, and you sweep it up. Next thing you know what's going on. Yeah, it's still there, right? Yeah, you ever had that experience? You sweep it up, and it's still there. You catch an angle, you see something glistening. What happens? The shards are so small, yeah, that they get stuck, they get wedged between, you know, the floor, the wood floor. There's like the, you know, the, the gap. It gets stuck in the gap. Stuck in the grain itself. Little small splinters. You can't walk barefoot for another uh, three months because, you know, less there's something else, unless you really pull it out. Pull, uh, pull it out carefully. You with me on this? Yes? Yes? Okay. By the way... Rule of thumb, never put a glass, a broken glass, into a garbage bag just by itself. Dangerous. You don't want to do that. You got to wrap it in paper. I know I'm speaking obvious things, but I figure a little life, uh, life tip um, pre-101 just to make sure. Now, moving along to our conversation about the broken pieces. Our job in the world of repair is to pick up all those broken pieces. Where are they? They're everywhere. It's like that glass that broke. Everywhere you look, there's a spark of, 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 of massive power, massive potential, divine energy stuck in everything. It's like those shards of glass that are everywhere. The sparks of godliness, the sparks of light are everywhere. It's shattered and it's everywhere. Every food, when we eat food, when we do business, when we eat, when we sleep, whatever we're doing, there's a potential holy experience there. But just like that glass, it's wedged inside. It's stuck inside. And how you pull it out is by utilizing that item or experience for a higher purpose. It's when you recognize that this food is not just food, but it's powered by God. It's divine energy found inside food that can give your soul energy. That's the way you pull out. You pull out the glass. You pull out the broken shard. You pull out that spark of holiness, and you reconnect it back to its source. This is the job of life. This is the job of Jacob, who represents tikkun repair, is to fix all those broken pieces of Esau. Esau breaks stuff all over the place. The world of Tohu, the world of chaos, breaks the vessels. And our job, the Jacobs, right? Our job is to extract the sparks, to extract the light, to pick up the pieces, to heal the broken, broken frag- uh, fragments. Um, this, this takes us back into the narrative. Let's jump back into the narrative. I want to actually rewind a few texts to texts 4a and 4b. This is from last week's Torah portion when, it, when we read about the epic meeting, the reunion between Jacob and Esau. So Esau says to Jacob, let's live together. Yeah, after 34 years, we're reuniting, we're friends. They hugged it out. We talked about this. They hugged it out. So now let's, uh, let's live together, side by side. Jacob says, uh-uh, not happening. Not happening. Take a look at 4a. He says, "Let my lord," in other words, you, Esau, "Let my lord go on ahead, of, go on ahead, of, sorry, go on ahead of his servant, while I travel slowly at the pace of the cattle before me and at the pace of the children until I come to my lord in Sayer." What's he saying? He's saying, "You go ahead, wait for me in Sayer, and I'll get there." Did he ever get there? He never got there. Jacob never got to Sayer. Text four B Rashi explains, "Until I come to my lord in Sayer," he mentioned. Jacob mentioned the much longer journey, for he really intended to go only as far as Sukkot. Jacob said, if Esau means to do me harm, let him wait to do so until I reach his boat at Seir. In other words, I'll never get there. If he wants to harm me, if it's a trap, I'll never get there. Therefore, he did not go to Sayer. That's the simple explanation. So when will he go? Did he lie? He said, I'll see you at Seir. But he never got to Sayer. He lied? Rashi says, no. When will he get there? In the days of the Messiah, as it says. And saviors. Mosheim, Savior, shall go up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. What we see here is that ultimately in the Messianic era, the destinies of Esau and Jacob will finally intertwine. What does that mean for us to connect it back to the sparks? Very simple. We have a world of chaos that shatters, and then a world of repair, and we're picking up the pieces. And that means that the world that we inhabit is a very fragmented place, it's a very broken place. Our job is literally to pick up the pieces. It's to earn money and to do something good with the money. Our job is to eat food and do something holy with the food. Our job is to own a house and to do something good with the house, i.e. host Torah study, pray, do mitzvot, etc. in your house. Our job is to utilize the items of this world that otherwise could seem fragmented and broken or otherwise are fragmented and broken and disconnected and raise them up, raise them back, find that core, find the light, find the spark, and raise it back. It's literally a game of, not a game, it's, really, it's literally a mission of find the sparks, the fragments of the, of the divine in everything around us. That's the job. This is what Jacob tells Esau. Esau says, let's go. We're ready. Let's live together. And Jacob says, no, no, no. There's still too many broken pieces. Esau, bro, you broke the glass. I'm still picking up the pieces. When will I be finished? When Mashiach comes. So what we're doing today is a continuation of that journey. It's a continuation of the Esau drama. It's the continuation of the shattering of those vessels and picking up the pieces. So what Asa starts, again, this is all symbolic, right? Because the world of Tohu, the world of chaos preceded the birth of Esau. But Esau represents chaos and Jacob represents Repair, so that's what we're talking about in these terms. But chaos precedes repair. The broken vessels precede the, the role of healing the vessels. Esau precedes Jacob. He's born first, he's born second. Version 1, version 2. Esau breaks the vessels. Jacob picks them up. Esau says, we're done here, right? Jacob says, you're done here. I'm still picking up pieces. I'll see you when Mashiach comes in sayer Does that make sense? Sort of? Yes. This explains why. This explains why the Jews have been exiled amongst the nations for so many years, for almost 2,000 years. Why? Let's take a look at the next text. Let's take a look at text number seven. Once again, a very powerful text from the Rebbe, whose celebrations we've been celebrating this week. Our sages say, the Jewish people were exiled among the nations to increase converts. Right. Why were we exiled amongst the nations? Why are we exiled amongst the nations? To gather converts. Which doesn't make any sense because Jews don't seek out converts. We don't proselytize. So what are we talking about here? So the explanation is like this. This is not to be understood literally. Rather, converts is a reference to the holy sparks that tumble down from the world of Toh, the world of chaos, that we sublimate, that we elevate, by way of eating and drinking. This is what I told you before, but this is from this source. To explain, Jacob's family of 70 persons is opposed by the 70 nations of the world. These negative forces stem all the way from the abstract world of Tohu. the eight primordial kings that we read about before. About each one of these kings, look at this, about each one of these kings, the, the kings of uh, Esau's family, Esau's descendants. The verse states, he reigned, and then shortly afterwards he died, which symbolized the idea of shattered vessels, right? reigning and dying, crashing. Right? Breaking? It's like the broken vessels. The notion that 288 divine sparks scattered into the lower worlds. It says originally, the sparks divided, broke into 288 pieces, but those further subdivided. It's not just 288 pieces of light, fragments. It's much more, but originally it's 288. (coughs) Let's continue. The foodstuff of this world contains energy from a benign sense of evil that is integrated in the form in which it grows. Really, all, all forms of human sustenance are like this. Now, when a person takes that food and uses the energy it provides to pray with focus and intense dedication to God, they've taken a divine spark trapped inside the food and the clutches of evil and redeemed it, shepherding that spark under the wings of the Shekhinah. Basically, this is the source of what I said to you before, that the the vessels shatter and go throughout the world. And our job is to go around the world. We're exiled amongst the nations. We're, we're, We're everywhere. Right? We're in Atlanta, we're in Texas, we're in Florida, we're in South Africa, we're in Australia, we're in France, we're in the Congo, we're in Vietnam. We're everywhere, right? Everywhere you go. Because there's sparks everywhere. And everywhere you go, there's a spark that's waiting to be released. A piece of a shard from the broken vessels that needs to be reconnected. It's like you want to put the pieces back together again and glue, it, glue the, the vase back together again. You got to get all the pieces. That's what we're doing. We're getting all the pieces. That's the big job of life. That's the job that Jacob alluded to Esau when his brother said to him, hey, let's hang out together. Let's, live to, let's settle down together. He's like, I'm still working. You, you retire. I'm still working. See you at Seir. See you when Mashiach comes. This is the job of the Jacob. This is the job that we've had for 3,000 years is to pick up the pieces and reconnect them. So with this, we understand something fascinating. This is something, this is why the Rebbe explains the story of Esau precedes the story of Jacob. That's, that was our first question. Why did the Torah talk about the story of, of Esau last week? Last week's Torah portion. It talked about his descendants. It talked about the kings that reigned and died. Like, who cares? And those happened later. The chronology is, is out of whack, right? We're talking about Esau's children before Jacob himself. What's going on? Because the story of Jacob is not Jacob. The story of Esau is not Esau. This is the story of all time. The story of Jacob is not simply Jacob and his children, the 12 12 sons, the 12 tribes. This is the story that's still going on until now. We're part of Jacob's story. Before you get to Jacob's story, you need to understand Esau's story. Do you you understand what I'm saying? To understand that you have a job to pick up the pieces, the the first thing you need to know is that the vessel broke. Does that make sense? Should I say it again? I'll say it again. To under, to, in order to, to, to recognize and to appreciate the task of picking up the pieces of the broken vessel, you need to know that the vessels broke. So the Torah tells us the story of Esau and his descendants. Vayimlach vayamas, vayimlach vayamas, vayamas. He reigned and he died and he reigned and he died and he reigned and he died. Shattering, 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 shattering. First we read about last week's Torah portion, the shattering of the vessels the illusion of the shattering of the vessel. We read about Esau and his family and about what that represents. That's the brokenness. And then this week, we can read about the repair. Now that we know that there are these sparks of divine energy, these potential, of Esau, Esau had such potential that the potential is now everywhere. The light is everywhere. Now we have our marching orders. Now we know why we exist. So to answer question number one, very quickly, to answer question number one, why is the story of Esau before the story of Jacob? Because chaos comes before repair. The brokenness comes before the fixing. The shattering comes before the gluing. That's the way it works. First, we read about the broken, then we read about, then we become empowered to fix it. This is what's going on. That's question number one. So what's the, what's the moral of the story? Our job is to repair what was broken. The second point, the second point, why the analogy of Rashi with the sand and the pearl and the pebbles, what's going on? The Rebbe explains that Rashi is not just telling us some random analogy, but he's answering the question that you and I struggle with on a a practical level every single day. And that is how to live in an Esau world, in a world that's really still chaotic, but somehow create order out of the chaos. How do we create order out of it? How do we go into a world that's absolutely of spiritual mayhem, a place of disconnection, a place where, you know, there's money and power and fame and, and influence and TikTok, a world in which all of that is the big thing and try to create some order out of it, some semblance of order? How do you create tikkun out of tohu? How do you create order out of chaos? How do you avoid being swept into the chaos of the world? Are you with me on my question? Yeah? So to this, Rashi gives the example of the pearl and the sand and the pebble. Some things are like sand, and some things are like the pebbles. Sand represents that which is a little bit more innocuous. It's not your pearl, but it's not dangerous either. The pebbles, on the other hand, oh, those pebbles are dangerous. In, in in Talmudic language, pebbles can cause damage. Sand, nah. What is, what's sand going to do? But pebbles, right? You kick up pebbles, it could break something. Pebbles are hard, right? What, what do they say? Yeah, don't throw stones in glass houses, something like that. Pebbles can hurt. Pebbles can damage. Sand. Yeah.
2: pebble killed Goliath.
0: Oh, Dave, right, good. David killed Goliath. With a pebble, right? Pebbles, yeah, Pebble, pebbles are dangerous. Sand, nah, sand's a little bit more. So the message that the Rebbe says, explaining the deeper significance of Rash's analogy is that when we're when we, living in an of in an world, living in an Esau world, a world of chaos, we're supposed to turn it into repair. We're supposed to make, make a seder, make an order out of this, make a tikkun. We're supposed to fix the world. But, but the world is starts off broken. How do we fix it? So we have to know. There's two different things. Certain things you can fix. Certain things you got to discard. Yeah? Certain things can be fixed. Other things, like the pebbles, you got to throw them away. Let's take a look at the way the Rebbe explains it so beautifully. This will take us to the end of our session tonight. Text number nine. Right here. The metaphor... Rashi's metaphor speaks of two items, sand and pebbles, because in our quest to conquer Esau, there are two methods of conquest and sublimation represented by sand and pebbles. Sand covers over items, as in our metaphor, it covers the pearls. However, the sand is not inherently a negative thing, as it has constructive uses. By contrast, pebbles don't just obstruct things, they are downright harmful with little productive use. So they must be discarded. Now again, I, I know what you're thinking. What pebbles don't have a use? You can use pebbles for ma- Yeah, I, the is saying, in, in, in this context of this analogy, sand represents that which is not—it's not a pearl, but it's, it's 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 innocent enough. Whereas the pebbles represent something that's actually harmful. This is instructive. Let's continue. This is instructive in our task. Sorry, for our task in exile. In other words, today, in the context of of our job to redeem divine sparks to pick up the pieces, right? Sand and pebbles indicate two methods. Pearls are a metaphor for those divine sparks that have fallen into the sand and pebbles of this material world. So again, the pearls are what we're trying to find. Pearls are the light, the shards, the, right, the, the, the light that's embedded in the broken pieces. Sand is a metaphor for material things that can only obstruct the divine spark. In other words, it covers over, but you can just, you know, pull it out. A Jew can redeem these sparks by engaging with that matter in a holy way. So again, eating food, let's say kosher food that you're eating. So the sand that covers it is the food itself. Oh, it looks good. It tastes good. So you might forget that there's a holy spark here because you got carried away with the taste. That's like the sand that covers over it. It's not evil, but it's covering over the, the purpose, the true purpose. However, pebbles, the last paragraph, pebbles are a metaphor for utterly evil things, from whose clutches the holy spark cannot be extracted with conventional methods. Instead, these items must be discarded. If you recall all the way back, all the way back in the story, we had the um, the analogy of Rashi. I'm going to pull it back up right over here. He says, that the analogy is a pearl that falls into the sand. The person surges in the sand and sifts it with a sieve until he finds the pearl. So that's step number one. Step number one is sometimes you can pull out the pearl by just noticing the distinction between sand and sand. And, or just clearing away the sand and you get the pearl. So this the sand is not like it's not um, offensive. It's just I need to move it away to get to the pearl. But then when you find the pearl, sometimes you have to deal with pebbles. Then you have to cast the pebble from his hand and keep the pearl. In other words, sometimes you have to throw away the pebble that gets mixed into the sand. The pe- that gets mixed in with the pearl. And the pebble says, "Look at me. I'm also round. I'm also a rock. I'm also yeah." And you have to, right, Donna? There are certain stones that are precious gemstones. Yeah, and certain ones not so precious. You have to know <coughs> your pebbles from your precious gems, from your from your uh, your beautiful gems, right? You got to know the distinction. The same thing is true in life. There's certain things that are not holy but also fairly innocent. Okay? But then there's certain things that are not just innocent. They're, they're 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 guilty. They're 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 not innocent. They're devious. And those things you have to discard. And the wisdom of life is recognizing, is being able to distinguish between those two, knowing which things can be included in divine service, in lifting the sparks and repairing the world, and know which things cannot be. So, for example, Tanya explains, kosher food can be elevated when you use it for the right reason. But food that's not kosher, even if you use the energy for something positive, the energy of that food can can never be released. For a holy purpose. That's why it's called Asur. Asur means forbidden, but it also means bound. It's tied up. The energy itself is tied up. Mutar, which means permitted. Mutar, like hatara, also means unfettered. It's not tied. That means it's available for elevation. So, in the process, to summarize the points, in the process of finding the sparks from the shattered vessels, from the world of chaos, and lifting them back up to the source, and making the world a tikkun, a, a place of repair, we encounter two challenges, two esos, two challenges. Certain challenges we can work with, other ones we have to move away from. Certain challenges we can we can fix, we can be metakeim, we can fix, and other adversaries, the way to fix it is by desisting from engaging with it. So it, on, on a practical level, in our lives, We have different areas of challenge. There are certain challenges, certain buttons, certain temptations that we know when we encounter them, doesn't end well. So what's the message? Those are the pebbles. Cast them away. Don't go there. Don't walk into that place. Don't engage with that person. Don't go to that. Don't allow the context, if you can at least, don't allow yourself to be in that context where those buttons are going to be pressed because when that happens, it, it becomes a very big challenge that you might not be able to withstand. But there are other situations that you could rise up to the challenge and you could conquer the temptation and you could do it. So in those cases, it's like sand. You can deal with it and easily clear it away. So there's pebbles and there's sand. Pebbles don't even deal with. Sand you can negotiate with, you can work with, and you can elevate for a higher purpose. The same thing is true with Esau. There's an element of Esau that can be uplifted and an element of Esau that must be discarded. It says that Esau is, is um, the animal, Esau's animal spirit is the pig. You know this one? It says that Esau is like the swine. Yeah? What's the swine? The swine says, the swine puts out its hooves, has split hooves. It says, look, I'm kosher. It doesn't chew its cut. It has to do both, right? Split hooves. So it says, look, look, I'm kosher. Just don't look inside, right? Just look in the outside, not in the inside. So it's, it's, it's a little bit tricky. It's a little, little bit... Uh, Duplicitous, and um, because of that, Esau is also like an Esau pretended that he was holy. He honored his father. He asked uh, good questions, but inside he was corrupt. So on the one hand, we know that that Esau represents evil. On the other hand, it says that when Mashiach comes, the Chazir, the pig, is going to become kosher. You heard that? The ha- Why is it called the Talmud says? Why is it called Chazir? Why is pig, pork called Chazir? Because it will be chozer, it will return. Chaz, ch- chazir is chozer, it means return. It will return to a state of kashrut, to a state of kosher. What's going to happen when Mashiach comes? It's going to start chewing its cud. The biology of the pig is going to change. It's going to chew its cud. It'll have both kosher signs. Until then, we got faken. You know faken? That's the fake bacon? Faken. it's a real thing. Anyway, what's the point? The point of the story is, Part of A's of can't be fixed. Part of Aesav can be fixed. The wisdom of life is to understand when and where to engage and when and where to desist. I think we all know inside which areas are our kryptonite and which areas in life we can handle. We have to be true to that, not tempt ourselves, not test ourselves, and recognize that this world, this life that we live, it's all about fixing what's broken. It's about looking for the light, looking for the sparks in every interaction, in every situation. I'll end with a story. There's once a man who's in the hospital. And I should mention that uh, dedicating this class, I meant to mention at the beginning, we'll mention it now, dedicating this class to the healing, the Rafua Shalema for Dr. Joy Maxey's mom. Who is uh, who's in the hospital right now? So we wish her a speedy recovery and a full recovery. Um, they, so there was a, a fellow, a man who had a relation with the Rebbe who was in the hospital, and he asked for a blessing for healing. And the Rebbe told him uh, through a mess, obviously you know through a messenger, whatever it was, that as soon as you finish, I think it might have been. Um, Gershon Bear Jacobson, the father of Rabbi Y.Y. and Simon Jacobson, their father, who was a journalist. He was a publisher of the Algemeiner Journal. I think it was him. He was in the hospital. He had some, you know, something, and he asked for a blessing to to be released. The Rebbe said, when you finish your shlichut, when you finish your mission in the hospital, then you'll be able to go. (laughs) In other words, you're not in the hospital because you're sick. You're in the hospital because someone there Needs to speak with you. So the rabbi said, when you finish your mission in the hospital, then you won't need to be there anymore. That was the rabbi's perspective. It's such an unbelievable way to look at life. It's an unbelievable way to look at life. And so, what was the next thing he did? He tells the story. What did he do? He tried to find Jewish doctors, asked if they want to put on the film. Like he started getting active, started hustling in the hospital because he has a mission now to do in the hospital. This is the story of our lives. We're here to fix. We're here to repair. We're not, right? Adina Malka, I know you can finish this this sentence for me. We're not victims. We're not sold as slaves. We were sent by God. We are are emissaries and messengers on a mission. We're not wandering this post-apocalyptic wasteland of Tohu chaos and void. Right? With this orange glow from the nuclear fallout and the zombie apocalypse. I know I'm mixing movies here. Anyway, walking by, that's not what we're doing. We're here as messengers to fix up this space and make it beautiful. Just like Joseph in this week's Torah portion. He's sold as a slave to Egypt and imprisoned in a dungeon in Egypt for a crime he didn't commit. He didn't care. He's on a mission. It's broken. The place is falling apart. He's fixing it. Everywhere he goes, he's making it look nicer than when he got there. Our job is not only physically to do this, but spiritually. Fix the world around us. Let's all be spiritual alchemists. Turning lead into gold. Making things shine. Making them beautiful. And making this world a better place. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. Torah Study and Alchemy. The, uh, the great combo tonight. Alright, questions, comments before we close out. Yes.
2: I just wanted to add to you to the analogy. Yes. Sand can be transformed into a pearl, but not a pebble.
0: Ah, nice. Nice. Good. Good. Maybe, maybe that's a deeper angle on what the Rebbe means with the distinction between the sand and the pebbles. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. If, you
2: look, if yeah. you look at how a pearl is made. How a pearls made.
0: It's the irritation, it's the sand, sand irritation right that it's creates
2: actually a grain of sand that goes th- in. That
0: then gets right. Yeah, that goes into how the yeah. Acre. yeah. Very good. Wow, I like it. I like it. So the I sand think itself like it. No, it's yeah. it's beautiful. So that this is a much deeper way of understanding it. So the sand itself yes. can be transformed into the pearl. The yes. pebble Nishkane pearl. It may it may be it may pose like a pearl. And say, look, look, I'm also a stone. What? You don't like me? It's like, we love you, but some, sto- some stones we keep and some become rolling stones. We roll them away and that's it. That's it. There's For, for another time, for another place. <laughs> All right. Good. Good, okay. good, good. And I
2: have, yeah. I have one more question. Sure. Uh, so well, how... It's a little bit disturbing to me, personally, who always thinks of people as being, you know... Potentially have the power to, to to change themselves and be good, but how can we blame Asab for not over overcoming his his faults? His if he was born, it, I mean, in the womb he was wild. I mean, you could see he was he can't be yeah. contained. Yeah. So how how can we sort of say, well, asaf was so evil and and you know we have. Because he was created that way, right?
0: Yeah. It's so very
2: upsetting to me.
0: So it's a it's a good question. I, the way it's answered in Chasidus is that Asav had tremendous potential. His light, the light of Tohu, is bigger than the light of Tikun. He had more light. So with the challenge, he also had more more potential. Now, does it always? And think about think about people. You have some people that are wild and they channel that energy to create amazing change to make to 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 do amazing things in this world. And some people have that that um, that that uh, restlessness and do and, and use it in very negative ways. It's all about power. It's like um there was once one of the rebbeim maybe the Rebbe Rashab the fifth Rebbe once gave an analogy to somebody of a wild horse that runs very fast. Yeah? A horse that runs very fast. So when when, when the horse turns off the path, very quickly, it's very far off where it needs to be because it moves really fast. It's like, but the good news is if it turns back, if it pivots in the right direction, it can very quickly get back on the road. So Aesop is the guy who has just tremendous potential, tremendous energy. And the goal is to get him to, uh, to, to, to channel it for something positive as opposed to something negative. We believe that that ability exists. Now, it doesn't mean that we It doesn't mean that we that, there's no one that's that's absolutely fated for evil. Even Asuv when he stirs in the womb toward the idolatry to the house of I, I, idol worship, he could have used that energy to combat idol worship. And I'm not saying to like, you know, to to harmony, but, but I'm saying like to to fight against you know, the, 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 the ugly um, manifestations in, in this world. But he didn't. He, he, he fell into, into a negative space. That was a choice that he made. It might be harder for him. It might be a little bit harder. But with, with, this, with that difficulty, with that challenge, comes potential. We're actually learning right now in our Sunday morning class a very similar idea that the greater the challenge, the greater the light that's given, the greater the animal soul, the stronger the animal soul, the stronger the godly soul. It always works. It's perfectly balanced. So is of to blame for his personality? No. Is he responsible for his choices, how he exercised that energy? Yeah, we all are. We all are. So to say that somebody, you know, it's not their fault because they have such, you know, powerful energy. I mean, part of that is true, but ultimately... We believe that we still have that. and it doesn't mean that we're supposed to go around judging people all day. We need to be, this is really a message for us. It's not a message really about pointing fingers. It's a message for us. So when it comes to Yaakov and Esav, you know, we're able to use these as archetypes. But really, it's about us. Like, what am I doing with my energy? and, And am I fixing my world, right? Starting from inside myself. Am I working on the things that I need to be working on? Am I working to repair the areas of my personality that I need to repair? Am I cutting ties with the things that I can't work on right now because it's too, you know, it's too difficult. So I'm just going to avoid that altogether until maybe I build up enough, enough strength to do that. We have to know the difference between sand and pebbles, between potential pearls and between those that are just never, never going to pearl up, never going to happen. All right, that's it for tonight, my friends. It's good to see you all. Um, I want to wish everybody, even though it's not a Jewish holiday, but it's really a Jewish theme, Thanksgiving. We say it every morning, mode Vanecha. We give thanks. Then we do for those that were at the last Shabbat Learner service. We say and then we say kitov, and then we say mode and Lach. multiple times in the service. We say where we acknowledge our gratitude and our thankfulness. So although Thanksgiving on a specific day in the calendar is not a Jewish thing. It's a thing that's supposed to be every day on the calendar. In other words, Thanksgiving is not just once a year. Thanksgiving is every single day. It's nice that the world catches up once a year and everyone's, you know, eating turkey at least or something. I don't know, everybody, at least here, right? There's, but we have to know that every day is, is a gift. And our lives are a gift. And those around us are a gift. And live every day with gratitude. It beats the alternative, trust me. Beats the alternative. Live each day with gratitude. You'll be happier. Those around you will be happier. It's a good thing. Get more done. Be grateful and fix the world, make the world a better place. Wishing everybody a happy Thanksgiving and an early happy Hanukkah. Um, some, some of you I see on Wednesday nights, so Hanukkah will have already begun. So Hanukkah begins Sunday night. If you need any Hanukkah supplies, let me know. We have plenty uh, at Chabad to, uh, to go around. We have also a Chabad in town in Atlanta, we have um, multiple opportunities to get your Hanukkah spirit on. Sunday evening, we have a menorah lighting in Virginia Highlands. Tuesday night at Atlantic Station. Thursday night at Ponce City Market. And the next Sunday night, the last night of Hanukkah, we have in Decatur where it's greater. So that's going on. There's also a few other events. Eighth Day, the band. Eighth Day, we'll be doing a live concert. Monday night, second night of Hanukkah. And there's also a Hawks game. Which I don't know which date that is. Is Did anyone see that? An Atlanta Hawks game? Lighting the Minority Hawks game? No? Okay, you can check it out if if that's your your thing. If you're interested in that, just google Atlanta Hawks Chanukah Chabad and you're bound to find it. Just drop in some keywords that make sense. Don't like drop in potato cocoa. That's going to throw off your search. Throw in Atlanta Hawks Chanukah Chabad guaranteed to find what you're looking for. Okay, By the way, I will say, I've been at these uh, Hanukkah Hawks games before. Very cool. They they roll out a menorah on on, on the court, at the the center court, if that's what it's called. And um, my kids in the past have gone courtside. They get jerseys. They throw them in the game, you know, if if the Hawks are down anyway. Joking about that. All right. That's it for tonight, my friends. Happy Hanukkah. Oh, last thing. I'm grateful to you. Talking about gratitude, I'm grateful to all of you, each and every one of you, for taking out time in your day, time in your week, to study Torah together. It's a beautiful thing, and I want to share the share a very heartfelt thank you and let you know that I that it that that it's very special what we're doing, what we have here in this uh, in town Jewish Academy, the Torah study that we do Wednesday nights and other times as well. So thank you, thank you for studying together. Thank you for being part of this inspiration, and part of this uh, amazing family. All right, Laila Tov, everyone. Steve, David, Laila Yona, tov. Dinamalka, Charna, Donna, Mike, Sarah, Donna, Fred, Paul, Yaakov, Sara, Lisa, Emma. Laila tov. Laila, tov. Laila, tov. Laila tov, good night everybody.